Welcome to Ag Future presented by Alltech. Join us from the 2022 Alltech One Conference as we explore opportunities within agri-food, business, and beyond. Dr. Richard Murphy is the research director at Alltech's European Bioscience Center in Dunboyne, Ireland. His research work has included the production of enzymes of industrial importance, as well as the physicochemical characterization of organic trace elements and minerals, in addition to microbial fermentation technologies. I'm Tom Martin, and Dr. Murphy joins us for an Alltech Ag Future podcast to talk about the long-term effects of antibiotic use in poultry and improving our understanding of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR. Welcome, Dr. Murphy. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you again. The, uh, the World Health Organization has identified antimicrobial resistance as a global public health threat, annually claiming at least 23,000 lives here in the U.S. alone. Where are we in our understanding of these pathogens and how to get them under control? That's a, a great question to kick off, and I think it's, it's, it's one that we could have a, a very, very long discussion on. And I just want to bring it, I guess, bring it back towards the animal production in side of things, sure. uh, poultry production, livestock production. And I think what we found over the last number of years, and when we look at all the available data that's there, antimicrobial resistance is a persistent problem. So the agriculture industry has made great strides in, I guess, moving towards reductions in, in antibiotic usage, restricting their usage even further. But when you look at the year-on-year -year data, even though the usage of antimicrobials and antibiotics has decreased, we, we tend not to see a, a, a similar decrease in the prevalence of resistance among pathogens that would have um, human residents, so E. coli, Salmonella, Campylobacter. And I typically refer to resistance as being a persistent problem. And this is a challenge for the industry. As we move towards reducing our antibiotic usage or, or moving towards antibiotic-free or no antibiotic ever uh, production systems, we still have to be mindful that there is a persistent issue and there is a, a persistent problem with resistance among pathogens that can cause um, foodborne illness. So the challenge for producers, for poultry and livestock producers, is how do we control pathogens and at the same time control antimicrobial resistance? And I think that's the key, um, is that it, rather than focusing solely on antimicrobial resistance, we need to focus on the pathogens because of the high-level prevalence of antimicrobial resistance that's uh, present in those pathogens. And I guess the, the group in Dunboyne that uh, I, I work with and have the pleasure of working with, um, we're really focused on trying to understand the link between pathogen control and control of antimicrobial resistance. Uh, and that's really, the, the I guess, the, the key, key area for us at the moment is the concept of controlling pathogens and having the added benefit of controlling antimicrobial resistance or at least reducing the, the, the issue of antimicrobial resistance. Okay, before we move in, into pathogens, uh, I wanted to pick up on something you said. It has to do with public perception. I, I wonder if public perception of this problem has caught up with the science, because it sounds to me like there have been some strides made, some improvements made. There have been, um, but I don't think the, the, the general public is aware of the, the level and the extent of the issue. Uh, and it's not just in the 
livestock and poultry production industries. This is across the board. You'll find antimicrobial resistance in um, fruit, in vegetables, in soil, in water. Uh, this is a, a, a global issue and it's not just linked to a single area like agriculture, like animal agriculture, for instance. It, it, it's everywhere. And certainly I don't think that the public are aware of the, the extent of the problem, the extent of the issues. And that's, that's the key challenge, I think, is we don't want to scare public and we certainly don't want to give them the, 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 the fear that, that the food that they're consuming is absolutely full of, of antimicrobial resistant pathogens. But at the same time, it is an issue. It, it is a problem that does need to uh, um, be controlled. And, and there are many different um, bodies worldwide which are involved in ensuring food safety and in ensuring that the food that we consume, whether it's meat, milk or eggs, uh, or even uh, um, um, vegetable produce, for instance, that ensuring that those products are safe. Um, and, and that's, that's the, I, I guess, a good message to give people is that we know in the industry it's a problem. Um, but that there are great uh, efforts made globally to control this issue and to try and understand this issue to a greater extent. Okay, let's talk pathogens. Um, and which ones are showing the strongest and the highest resistance to antibiotics? I guess if we were to look at the big three, uh, we could call them a trifecta. Um, e. coli, salmonella and campylobacter, they would be the, the, the biggest issues, I think, uh, um, globally. Um, there are others like listeria, for instance, um, C. difficile um, would be a, an issue as well. But I think the, the biggest problems are among E. coli, salmonella and campylobacter. In uh, 2020, there was a paper showing the extent of AMR in the Canadian broiler industry. Can you give us some details of those findings? Yeah, yeah so this was a, a, a really nice paper, and it, it focused solely on the Canadian broiler industry. And I think it would be remiss of me not to say now quite clearly that this isn't just a Canadian problem. This is a global problem. So this just surveyed the Canadian it industry. It just happened to be Canada. It just happened to be Canada. Sorry, Canada. <laughs> Um, and among E. coli, there was uh, a greater than eighty percent of greater than eighty percent of the E. coli isolates that the researchers looked at were resistant to at least one antimicrobial. Among Salmonella, it was more than sixty percent were resistant to at least one antimicrobial. So this gives you the the idea, or this gives you, uh, I guess, some uh, um, indications of the scale of the problem. And these were just looking at, at generic E. coli and salmonella isolates in, in um, um, broiler products and broiler meat products in, in, in the Canadian industry. And it's the same worldwide, unfortunately, Tom. In fact, that research, as I understand it, uh, did a comparison uh, in generic E. coli isolates with those in broiler meats in Denmark, Germany, Hungary, and Slovenia. And among those, Denmark had the lowest level of resistance. What is Denmark doing right? I guess you would ha have to look at, at differences between antibiotic usage and, and differences between antibiotic control mechanisms that are in place in, in each of these jurisdictions. Um, it may well be as well that there's, I, I guess, you'd have to look at, at trying to compare like for like um, and whether that was a fair comparison is something else to think of, uh, but certainly in, in Denmark, they have been at the forefront of, of, of um, uh, trying to monitor and trying to control and, and, and reduce the usage of, of antimicrobials. Um, and perhaps there are significant differences between usage patterns in, in Denmark and, and usage patterns in, in Canada, for instance, or in some of the other jurisdictions of the other countries. 
Do high levels of antimicrobial resistance carry over from the animal to retail poultry meat? Yes, there are studies which would, would show that um, you, you will have um, carryover of resistance um, from the live animals through to uh, retail products. Uh, and certainly that's probably the, the most concerning area for us is what's, that, um, what's the extent of carryover and um, what's the exposure risk, if you like, um, from finished products. How is the profile of pathogens in the industry changing and what's being done to get that under control? Again, this is, this is something that I've become quite interested in, um, Tom, and, and you can quite easily access uh, food safety and inspection service data. So um, from the US here, they publish quarterly figures for domestic chicken, for turkeys, for pork and for, for beef. Uh, and you can look at the salmonella serotypes that have been identified um, by the FSIS. And what I've done is I've, I've, I've just taken a quick snapshot. Um, so from 2016 to 2021, it's actually of interest in that there's a couple of challenges, I think, for the industry is that not only are there a wide range of serotypes, so we're not just limited to one, two or three serotypes in that five, six year period. Um, there's quite a number of, of salmonella serotypes identified by the FSIS some at very low levels um, and some at, at, at more abundant or more prevalent levels. And among the core group, what's really of interest is that between 2016 and 2021, there has been a shift, if you like, in the serotype prevalence and serotype abundance. So for instance, um, enterotitis, salmonella enterotitis and salmonella typhimurium have become less prevalent. Uh, whereas we see a big increase in, in uh, Salmonella infantis in that five, six year period. So for producers, that's a, a challenge because you're now dealing with not only multiple serotypes, multiple serogroups of, of Salmonella, but you've also got temporal changes. You've also got changes in the serotype prevalence. So whatever strategy you're using to control or restrict um, um, salmonella prevalence and salmonella abundance, it needs to be broad spectrum. It needs to be able to deal with multiple serotypes and changing serotypes over time as well. Can these resistant strains be made more sensitive to antibiotics? And even if they are, what about the public's perception and kind of pushback against antibiotics? Again, a great question. Um, and we've done quite a bit of work on this. And I guess if, if I just briefly give you a, an overview of what we've looked at, Tom. Mm -hmm. um, so firstly, I guess our main interest lies in the, in the concept of the microbiome and how we can utilize the gut microflora as a way in which we can control pathogens in an innate fashion. So if you can expand the richness and the diversity of the, the gut microflora, that enables the GI tract to self-police. So you tend to get um, what's known as colonization resistance. You get greater resistance to um, pathogen colonization of the GI tract. Uh, and we found in, in multiple studies across multiple species that we can affect changes. We can bring about increases in species richness, in gut microfloral diversity with the use of, of, of uh, um, manin-based prebiotics, so manin-rich fraction, for instance. At the same time, what we know is that when you enable an increase in diversity and when you enable colonization resistance to take place, you tend to reduce or restrict pathogen prevalence within the, the GI tract. So straight off, just by working at a nutritional level, 
you can begin to restrict the, the prevalence of E. coli, salmonella, and we found it with, with Campylobacter, C. difficile, and even Listeria, that the innate properties of the, the gut microbiome actually means that you can begin to restrict many pathogens that have food safety uh, um, implications. We've also done some additional work which looks at, at, at screening, if you like, E. coli and, and, and salmonella isolates um, when we have um, um, malnourished fraction present in the diet and looking at the prevalence of resistance among E. coli and enterococci as well. Uh, and what we have found is that when you bring about changes in the microbiome and when you bring about those population shifts that I've, I've just mentioned, you actually restrict the extent of, of antimicrobial resistance, um, certainly amongst E. coli, certainly amongst enterococci. Uh, at the same time, uh, we've focused on the prebiotic properties of man and rich fraction. Uh, and basically what we're looking at here is um, what changes we can make in the meta metabolic profile or, or the metabolism of the bacteria. And when we've used E. coli as a model organism for this, and what we found with um, these MRF prebiotics is that they change the metabolism behavior of the, the bacteria. The bacteria becomes more energized. Mm. But as it becomes more energized, it produces more toxic products. So it produces more reactive oxygen species internally in the bacteria. So now the bacteria is dealing with increased reactive oxygen species as a basic function of its own metabolic behavior. But at the same time, if you have antibiotics present, those antibiotics will also stimulate reactive oxygen species. So like it's a double whammy. Mm -hmm. And what we've actually found certainly among E. coli is that in the presence of MRF-based prebiotics, metabolic function is changed and that metabolic function actually increases the sensitivity of the bacteria to antibiotics. This is fascinating. It, this is a, a, a really, uh, I, I'm actually really, really passionate, really excited about this because this is probably the first time that any group has, has, has described um, what you would refer to as, uh, as a, a, an adjunctive uh, impact on the antibiotic function. So now we have, I guess, um, a mechanism whereby antibiotics become more efficient. So if you're in a situation where for animal welfare reasons or poultry welfare reasons, you need to use antibiotics. But if you're using um, mannan-based prebiotics at the same time, you actually make those antibiotics more effective. Um, and that means that the likelihood perhaps of developing further issues with antimicrobial resistance are somewhat lessened. Uh, and that to me is, is an area that we will, we will be doing a lot more work on. Um, but I think that has very important implications um, for pathogen control in the long term. So in, in many ways, we've got two, I guess, key areas to focus on. One, we're working with the microbiome. So manin-based prebiotics will increase the diversity of the gut microflora, and that makes the GI tract more resistant to pathogen colonization. But at the same time, we now have an inherent capability of these preparations that actually enhance the metabolism. So they increase metabolic function in the pathogen and that makes them more susceptible to antibiotics. So it's a really, really good approach, I think, um, to control and, and restrict um, antimicrobial resistance. And is MRF becoming more prevalent in animal diets? Um, worldwide, we do see great usage. Uh, there are, I think, a couple of key things to think about with, with, with MRF. So I would describe MRF as being like a second generation manin-based prebiotic. So the, the first generation of those would have been generic moss type products. So these would have been rather crude 
mannan containing uh, uh, fractions that are isolated from the outer cell wall of Saccharomyces yeast. Um, the groups within Alltech worked on trying to understand what the, uh, I guess, the, the more active principle or the more active component from moss-based prebiotics, and that led to the development or the isolation of, of a second-generation man-enriched fraction. I think what sets MRF apart from moss-based products is the relatively high proportion of, of certain mannan groups that are present within them, so alpha-1,3, alpha-1,6 um, mannan-linked uh, polysaccharides. We're enriched in MRF-based preparations, and that's really what the, what's the, the key to their success, Tom. I, I'm listening and I'm thinking uh, how interesting and fun it might be to invite uh, Dr. Murphy into my kitchen while we're preparing a meal, <laughs> a poultry meal, and have you tell us what kind of precautions we need to be taking. You're observing it as a scientist who understands this. So what, what precautions consumers need to consider when they're preparing poultry for a meal? Quite simple. Always cook your chicken properly. So you need to really get it. You really need to apply heat, really need to cook it properly. And that's the, the, the simple message, I think, Tom, that, that you know, um, consumers can take from this. If you cook your meat properly, it's perfectly safe. And this is totally off the wall question, but I, I wonder, does, does brining poultry meat have any effect on pathogens? Uh, it, it will do, but it depends on the, the level and extent of, of brining that you do. You will still need to cook that brined meat properly. Mm -hmm. um, so brining is a, is, is, is a popular way of controlling pathogens. And salt obviously does have a, an impact on pathogens, but you do need to cook that meat properly. When you get back to work, what's on your desk? What's, what's happening right now in this world? Uh, we've actually got quite a number of, of, of uh, manuscripts, some, some papers in preparation, and we do have, we do have one other key strand of, of research in this area on the AMR side that, that, that we're, we're, we're planning. So basically to look at, I guess, longer term multi-cycle studies in poultry uh, to try and understand the, the benefits that we have with regard to uh, reducing the presence and, and prevalence of, of uh, resistant organisms in a facility with time. Um, and that to me is, is an exciting area. Uh, we've done some initial work on, on multi-cycle studies and, and shown that we have consistent impacts on um, not just microbiome diversity, but we also get increased uh, microbiome uniformity. Um, and that's a, an interesting area for us to explore because if we can increase the uh, uniformity of the, the gut microbiome, then that will have, uh, I guess, production benefits. So your, your production process uh, potentially will be more standardized. So that's something that we're looking at. But certainly on the AMR side, it's trying to understand the long-term benefits in, in reducing prevalence of AMR uh, with, with continuous use of uh, MRF-based prebiotics in, in uh, production systems. All right, that's Dr. Richard Murphy, Research Director at Altex European Bioscience Center in Dunboyne, Ireland. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Tom. For the Alltech Ag Future Podcast, I'm Tom Martin. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.